Another short section, John 1, 14 through 18. I think once we get through the prologue, which is pretty much done now, the first few verses of John, I think we'll go back to a little longer sections than we've had the past couple months. But some of you, I think, are probably happy we've had shorter sections. So John 1, 14 through 18. Perhaps no richer text in all of Scripture. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And so this really is the end of that prologue introducing us to the Word. Next week we'll be looking at John the Baptist's testimony about the Word. Here there's a reference to that. We'll actually cover that right here at the beginning in verse number 15. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Now, at least the ESV, and I'm sure many other modern translations give us a little help there, they put the parentheses around that verse. Those are there to tell us that this is kind of an aside. He's not really developing the argument in verse 15. He's just kind of locating the argument. I think the purpose of that verse is to draw the connection between the man he's about to talk about. Because once we get to verse 19, we start getting an account of an actual event in time. Something that happened on the earth that people could see. John bearing witness, John giving a testimony. And specifically at the end of that section... It's locating it geographically. It's locating it talking about Jesus because verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Then in verse 15, we go back and says, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So this is a really interesting place to put that parenthesis because John, the evangelist, John, the gospel writer, is recalling something that he has not yet recorded John the Baptist saying. So he's looking ahead. What he's saying, the man that John the Baptist was speaking of, the man who John the Baptist baptized and said, the one who comes after me is before me because he was before me. This man, who is that? Well, we find later on in this chapter, that man is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It is one specific person. By putting this little aside here, he's saying the word is Jesus. Not just the word is man. The focus of our text this morning is going to be on the fact that the word became flesh, that the word was man. But it's not just a man. It's not just any man. It's not just mankind. It's not just men. It is a specific man, Jesus of Nazareth. This one person is who we're talking about. And so that's inserted to support, to make that connection for us. But the argument that is being made is that the word became flesh. There are certain biblical doctrines that exist in tension, or we might call them a paradox. We experience these paradoxes where we feel two seemingly contradictory things. 
I feel that about my children often. My wife and I, as we're talking about the kids, I don't know how many times a day when we're talking with each other, we're like, man, those kids are great. We love those kids. They're so great. And then five minutes later, we're talking, man, those kids are awful. And we hold these two truths in tension. Our children are both wonderful and we'll say challenging is probably the right word to use there. And we hold that tension where we need a break from our kids and we want to spend time with our kids. How can both of these things be true? We're used to that idea of paradox, of tension, of feeling these opposite, seemingly contradictory emotions. The truth is they're not actually contradictory, right? And in some sense, our children are wonderful and we thank God for them. We love spending time with them. In other senses, we really do need a break. So theologically, we have three really big paradoxes, three really big tensions. And these tensions tend to be the major conflict points in Christian history. One such tension is the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And we can make a case throughout the entire Bible that salvation is of the Lord. The Lord is the one who calls. The Lord is the one who elects. The Lord is the one who justifies. The Lord is the one who sanctifies. There's the source of salvation is found in God. Yet, there are also just as many verses that we could turn to that call humans to repent and believe. And so there is a divine sovereignty at work in salvation, but there is also human responsibility. And that paradox, that tension where we say, here are two things that I don't know how to make them fit together perfectly, that tends to create a lot of conflict in the church historically. That conflict, the words we'd use today might be Calvinism and Arminianism, but that, it goes way back farther than that to the 4th century where Augustine and Pelagius are debating the same sort of thing, that divine sovereignty and human responsibility. These tensions exist. Another big tension is the doctrine of the Trinity, right? There is one God. Jesus is God. The Father is God. The Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Father is not the Spirit. How can all of these things be true? How can it be true? There is one God and there are three persons in the Trinity. That is a paradox. It's a tension. It's something that we struggle to resolve. And again, historically, this has been a major flashpoint in the history of Christianity. In this particular situation, it divides those who can rightly be called Christian from those who cannot. But if we go back to the first two or three centuries in church history, there's the Arian controversy where they're working through this issue with a guy named Arius. If you remember Christmas, that's the guy that Santa Claus punched in the face. So Arius is an early problem dealing with this doctrine of the Trinity. But then even today you have Jehovah's Witnesses, you have Mormons, you have other groups that deny the doctrine of the Trinity because there's a tension here. The third major tension is the doctrine of the incarnation. And that's where we're gonna be parking today. These tensions are important to accept both sides, even when we can't resolve them, if the Bible has clearly revealed both things to be true. And in this case, the doctrine of the incarnation, literally the enfleshment, Jesus, the Son of God, taking on flesh, becoming a man, has the same tension. Because we are going to see in this text that we can rightly say that the Son, the Word, Jesus, is truly God. We're also going to see how we can say that Jesus, the Son of God, is truly man. He is both. It's not a mixture of both. He's not half man 
and half God. He's not like a liger, where it's a lion and a tiger. You mix them up together, you get something new. That's not what Jesus is. He's not a mix of two natures. He is holy, fully, truly, can use any of those words to say Jesus is man. In reality, in completion, he is man. He's not part of man. He's not kind of man. He's not like a man. He is a man. But you can say the same about his deity. He is God. And so that is the tension. So let's look at this text, how it sets us up for this tension. We won't read them, but the previous 13 verses are really setting the stage for this. The first 13 verses are primarily concerned with making the case that the Word was God. We had many claims. We talked about the fact that even though some might dispute the translation in verse number 1, that the Word was God should be the Word was a God or the Word was God-like. It's a possible translation. At the same time, the Word was God is a possible translation. Yet we have all these other facts that are coming into play throughout this text that point to the fact that Jesus, the Son was God. First of all, he was in the beginning. God the Creator creates in the beginning. The first three words of John are very similar to the first three words of Genesis. It's setting up the Word as the Creator, as God. He was with God. He was God. He made all things. He gave life. He gave light. All of these descriptions of the Word in the first 13 verses are pointing us to the truth that the Word was truly, fully, completely God. But now we get to verse number 14. The Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. This word became is not a change in location. It's not talking about the Word coming into the world. That's been stated before. The Word came into the world. We see that up above, verse number 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Okay, that's a completely different word than the word that we see in verse number 14. The Word became flesh. The distinction there is that the Word comes into the world. So the Word is, in a sense, not denying the omnipresence of God, that He is everywhere, but in a sense, He is outside of the world, and then He comes into the world. It's a change in location. Yet then, we get to verse 14, the Word became flesh, is not a change in location. The Word takes upon Himself flesh. The Word was not flesh and now is flesh. So this is why if we're talking in the Old Testament, it's probably better to use different titles for the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, than Jesus. Jesus is a human name. When Jesus is born, he is named Jesus. Now, it's not a heresy to talk about Jesus in the Old Testament. But it's the Son of God is his eternal identity. Jesus is the name of a human person that takes on flesh that is born. The fleshly word begins at a point in time when the word breaks into creation and dwells with it. The term flesh there is intensifying the meaning even beyond saying man. Not saying that he has the character of a man or a nature of a man, but even he has a body. He has flesh. He has meat. He can be touched. He can be held. The Word takes on himself flesh, becomes flesh. Now, the word flesh can often refer to the corrupt nature. 
of humanity. In this case, clearly it's not. It can mean that. It doesn't have to mean that. Flesh here simply means a body. It means that Jesus, the unlimitable word who is omnipresent, he exists everywhere, he is eternal, he is infinite, he is omnipowerful, he can do all things, he limits himself. He becomes flesh. He becomes body. And with becoming body, he experiences what it means to be man. He experiences fragility. Most of you know I enjoy soccer. My team had a guy on it. His name was Ryan Mason. And he was a young guy, like 24 years old. He ended up playing for another team for a while. Happened to hit heads with someone on the field. And had to retire from soccer because the doctor said, if he plays again, he will die. Pretty extraordinary for an athlete in peak condition to suddenly find out that he bumped his head the wrong way and he can no longer play the sport that he trained his entire life to play. Because humans are fragile. It is easy to break us. It is easy to end the life of a human. Our life is fleeting. Taking on flesh means that he endures suffering. Jesus is hungry. He is thirsty. He is tired. He experiences the stress of the world. He experiences what it is like to be human, what it is like to desire, what it is like to be a man because he's flesh. He experiences the limitations of being human. I will never dunk a basketball. I think my curling window is even closing at this point. I'm just never going to be a superstar athlete. My body is limited. Jesus experiences the limitations of a human body. He's not the fastest kid in school, probably. Can you imagine going from being the God who created everything in the world to not being able to win a running race against someone who you literally breathed life into? That's what happens to Jesus. He takes upon humanity with all of its limitations, takes on flesh. He identifies with us. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. We do not have a high priest who has not been touched with our infirmities, but in all points was made like us. He experiences humanity. He experiences temptation. He knows what it is like to be human. The Word became flesh, so the tension is introduced. God, the Creator, in the beginning, with God, gives light, gives life, became flesh, and dwelt among us. That word dwelt can be translated pitched his tent. It's the same idea as the tabernacle in the Old Testament. It's this temporary dwelling place, but he is with us. We should, in fact, as we read this, even have our minds turn back to the idea of the tabernacle. What was the tabernacle? As Israel is wandering through the wilderness, coming to the promised land, God gives them instructions for a place where he would dwell. Yet that place, that tabernacle, is very limited. The dwelling place of God had to be taken down. It had to be reset up. It had to be moved around. It had to be built. Yet in Jesus, he tabernacles with us. He dwells with us. He pitches his tent with us. God, in the flesh, comes to earth and lives with us. Yet, it was in one place. If Israel wanted to meet with God, they had to go to the tabernacle. But in Christ, the tabernacle comes to us. The tabernacle comes to us and pitches his tent with us. God's presence 
with his people is intensified because God himself takes on a body and dwells with his people. This points us towards God's future presence even. And we get to this point at the beginning of John. We hear about the word becoming flesh. And maybe today as modern Christians we think, well, that was nice for them. They could see the word become flesh, but we cannot. Yet Jesus, just before his departure, says, I have to go so I can send you something better. A comforter. One who walks alongside you. One who dwells inside you. So that now, what is the temple? It's us. So, in the Old Testament, you have a temple where God dwells. In the Gospels, Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the dwelling place of God. But in his ascension, he makes it possible for the Spirit to dwell within us. There's this increasing presence of God on the earth. So we conclude that we have true God and true man. The Word is God. The Word is man. Seemingly contradictory ideas. What makes it not a contradiction is that we don't say the Word is God, but the Word is not God, and the Word is man, but the Word is not man. No, that is false. The Word is God and the Word is is man. And we cannot reconcile that perfectly with human logic. Yet the Bible is clear. This is God and man. In Jesus, there is the fullness of God, his eternal existence, his creative work. And there is also the fullness of humanity, the body of flesh, the seed of the woman, the offspring of Mary, one who grows, one who is tired, one who is hungry and thirsty, one who is seen as a man. We call this the hypostatic union, the union of God and man in Christ. But this is all empty theology, empty philosophy, empty discussions if we don't put something to this, if we don't talk about what this means. And this text tells us exactly what it means. It tells us, because this is a unique section of the book of John. See, we use verbs in different persons. A first-person verb is when I say, I say this, or we say this. So it's, I'm involved in the speaking. A second-person verb is you. You said this, or if you're pluralizing it in the north, you said this. If you're pluralizing it in the south, y'all said this. You, second person. Third person reports something that's seen. He, she, it, whatever other pronouns have been invented in the past five years. Whatever it is, it's an observation. He said this. So we're moving away from our involvement in the story as we go from first, second, third. So if you said it, then I might not be a part of it. But if I said it, I am a part. Now, John records lots of first person verbs throughout his gospel. However, this is unique in that this verse has the only time when John is the one who's saying them. So every other time there's a first-person verb, it's Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus might be talking in first person. Or Peter might say, I believe. Or a centurion might say, I believe. The Pharisees might say, we want to kill him. All right? Those are first person. But here in this verse, it's the only time that John brings us into the story. John is not merely reporting facts. He's reporting his experience here. Because we have two first person verbs in these verses. Verse 14. 
and we have seen his glory. So the first response that John has here, the first thing that John participates in, we have seen. John himself has seen the glory of Christ. But then he also says in verse number 16, we have all received grace upon grace. So John's participation in the story of Jesus comes right after his declaration that Jesus is God and Jesus is man. So what difference does it make that Jesus is both God and man? It makes a difference because we see the glory of God and we receive grace upon grace. So let's talk this morning about our two responses, our role in the story. We see glory. This is a sandwich. We've talked about these sandwiches throughout. But we see glory is talked about in 14 and 15 as well as 18. And then where verse 16 and 17 is where it talks about grace. We see glory. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So we see glory. What does it mean that we see glory? Well, Brad this morning read a text of scripture that I think was in the mind of John the Evangelist as he was writing this text. Exodus chapter 33 and 34 is perhaps the biggest discussion of God's glory in the Old Testament. Probably most of us are familiar with the story, but let's just review for sake of clarity. Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai. God gives him the two tables of the law. He comes down from Mount Sinai and he finds that Israel has made a golden calf and is worshiping the golden calf rather than worshiping God who has no form, no being. And so Moses comes down in anger. He throws the tablets down. He breaks them. God is angry at the people. Moses is angry at the people. The people are probably shaking in their boots at this point in time. It's a really bad situation. So Moses goes to the tent of meeting. Again, remember pitching a tent? All right, that's the language being used in this passage. Moses goes into a tent to meet with God. There is a special place where only Moses can go, and he meets with God. Exodus 33, verses 18 through 23. Moses said, please show me your glory. He said, I will make all my goodness. So Moses, please show me your glory. And he, God, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he, God said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by, when then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So Moses pleads with God, pleads with God to show him his glory, and God says, You don't want that. You do not want to see my glory because you cannot survive an encounter with my glory, Moses. And so God says, I will show you my glory, but only to an extent. 
and cannot see my face, cannot look on my face, I will pass by you. We've all probably heard that term, I will hide you in the cleft of the rock. I think generally when we think about that, we're thinking there's all this turmoil in the world and we can rest securely in God and he will hide us from the turmoil of the world. But this is where it comes from and that's not what it's saying. Saying, I will hide you in the cleft of the rock. What are we hiding from? God himself. Brings my mind back to the garden when Adam and Eve feel the need to hide from God. Here, God says, you were right. You do need to hide from me, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. And so God's glory is revealed to Moses. It's revealed so much so that, in fact, when he comes down from the mountain, his face is glowing. His face is glowing, and the nation of Israel is terrified of Moses because he saw the back of God. The limitations on Moses' experience of the glory of God nonetheless results in a change in his very being so that people see him and he's shiny. I don't know what that would have looked like exactly, but he shines in reflection of the glory of God. So let's go on. This is God saying what he's going to do. Chapter 34 records God actually doing it. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. God reveals himself, but he reveals himself in his complexity. Because in this verse, look at the two different chunks of descriptions of God. In these verses, the Lord passed before him, proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is the kind of God we love to talk about, right? This is the friendly side of God. He's forgiving, he's gracious, he's love. This is the one that they sing about on the radio. All right, this is the aspect of God that everybody likes. But then there's a big old but in the middle. Here. Sorry, that wasn't what I was trying to say. There's a but in the middle who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So God visits iniquity. This is not the aspect of God they sing about on the radio. This is not the aspect of God that you put on your day-by-day -day calendar and sit on your desk to look at. Yet both are equally true of God and both are equally revealed to Moses. This is a God mighty in grace strong to save, forgiving. This is also a God who visits the iniquity of the fathers on their grandchildren. Okay? So we have this contrast here because God's glory is indescribable. It's inexpressible. And in Moses, we have this very limited view of who God is. It's limited to Moses. He doesn't see everything. It's limited to the nation of Israel. They only see the reflection of what Moses has seen. So Moses sees a sliver of the glory of God. Israel sees the reflection of the sliver of the glory of God on Moses' face. It's the difference between staring full in the sun and staring full in the moon. 
Israel looks at the moon, the reflection of God's glory. But Moses, basically, almost kind of like the eclipse glasses, he sees a bit of the glory of the sun, yet God's glory is revealed to Israel. But it's revealed in anticipation of something greater. You're left with all this partialness in this text. All this partial discussion of what the glory of God is going to look like. That's anticipating something in the future. But that's the background for what John's writing about. That's the concept of glory that John is dealing with. And what does he say about the glory of Christ? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son, the unique Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word becomes flesh. The inaccessible glory becomes accessible. He dwells with us. He pitches his tent. The tent of meeting that Moses went to to see a shadow of the glory of God is now pitched with us in the person of Jesus Christ. The only way that we can possibly see God is to see him as he has revealed himself in Christ. Now today, do we visually see Jesus anymore? No, he ascended into heaven. Yet, we still see his glory revealed. Let's say in two ways, particularly in the Holy Spirit, which Jesus says he leaves to send to us, but also in the body of Christ, the church of the living God. John's gospel confronts us with the glory of God by confronting us with Jesus. But what's his purpose? Why is he doing this? We're going to come back to the same thing that I've said we're going to come back to probably every week through this series. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. And even near this text in verse 12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. The glory of God has been revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ, and there is a response demanded of it. We must believe. We must Trust the Son of God who took upon himself flesh, who dwelt with us, who tabernacled with us, so that the tent of meeting is no longer a tent made of cloth in the wilderness, but a tent in human form, a tent with a body, a tent that takes on flesh, God's presence with us and in us. So first, we see glory, but there's another way that John enters us into this account, we receive grace. Verse number 16, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So here's the middle section of this text, and it tells us what are the benefits of seeing the glory of God revealed in Christ, of believing the glory of God revealed in Christ. God's glory is not left behind when we stop talking about glory and start talking about grace. 
Because again, back to our text in Exodus 33 and 34, what's said about the nature of God's character? I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So, as recorded in Exodus, in God's own mouth, saying that he is gracious. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children through the third and fourth generation. So the glory of Christ revealed includes his grace. From his fullness, from the word become flesh, fullness, we have received grace upon grace. In Jesus, we see how the Lord can simultaneously be the merciful, slow to anger, gracious God, and also the visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, God. In Christ, we see that tension resolved. Because in Christ, we receive grace upon grace. Now, why does he say grace upon grace? Why couldn't he just say we receive grace? What's the point of that repetition? Well, there's a couple translation options here. The ESV that I'm preaching from takes the option of grace upon grace. So it's like heapings of grace and then more heapings of grace on top of the grace. Kind of like when you go to grandma's house and she makes mashed potatoes and she just keeps giving you more mashed potatoes. Right? So grace upon grace. I think that includes some of the idea that's being communicated here. But there's another way we can translate it. This is the same word that we use when we say that Jesus died for sin. Okay? It can also mean grace in the place of grace. So we're taking an old kind of grace and we're swapping in a new kind of grace as well. Now, I think they're not mutually exclusive. I think we can have both senses where we have this old limited form of grace that's replaced with a new super abundant grace upon grace. But we have a contrast that's set up here, grace and grace. Now, normally, we wouldn't refer to the same word twice as being a contrast between two concepts. However, when you look at the next verse, what's happening here? Four. So it's an explanation. Grace upon grace, for how is it true that there's grace upon grace? The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So we have the old grace and the new grace. The old grace was the law. Now the law, can we rightly call it a grace of God? I think we certainly can. Throughout the New Testament, it's pointed out that the law is a good thing. The law reveals our sinfulness. The law points us towards Christ. Yet, the law ultimately damns us. The law kills. And so even though we can say it's a grace, because frankly, any time God speaks to his creation, it is grace. When God speaks to his creation in the law, it is a limited form of grace. It is a grace that shows our condemnation, not a grace that gives us hope. Yet, in Christ, grace for grace, a new grace, a different kind of grace, an abundant kind of grace, the law is already fulfilled in Christ and it is replaced by something greater, the grace we find in Christ. Grace on top of or grace for grace, either way you want to take it, it gets this idea communicated that in Christ we have something special. 
Galatians 2 tells us that the law kills, but Jesus gives life. And so this new abundance of grace is given to us, this new, different, special grace. God reveals his glory in Christ by manifesting his character in fullness. That includes the mercy and grace and kindness and forgiveness that's talked about in the first half of God's statement in Exodus 34, and includes the justice and wrath and judgment that's talked about in the second half of the statement. God is gracious because he gives us salvation from his wrath. Always keep that in your mind when you are talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are talking about how God saves us, not from ourselves, not from Satan, not from evil. God saves us from his own wrath, which we rightly deserve, by pouring it out on Christ in our place. He hides us in the cleft of the rock. He is hiding us from his self not from anything else. Jesus comes to deliver us from the wrath of God. He comes to show the glory of God in a way that will not kill us, but will make us like him. You see, if Jesus came to deliver us from sickness, he could have come as a doctor. If he came to deliver us from poverty, he could have come as an economist. He could have even merely come as a miracle worker to deliver us from death. But Jesus doesn't come to deliver us from those things. He comes to reveal the glory of God and deliver us from the wrath of God on sin. So Jesus must be God in flesh. He must be God and man. And as we see him and we believe him, we receive grace upon grace. So Christian, hold on to Jesus. He has given us abundantly beyond what we could imagine, his righteousness. He has glorified us. We anticipate the time when we can dwell with God. And that's made possible in Jesus. Do not give up on Jesus when life seems challenging. Do not trust yourself when you seem like the only reliable person in your life. Do not minimize the accomplishments of Christ on the cross Christians hang on to Jesus. He is the one who reconciles God's wrath and God's mercy in himself when he, in love, dies for us, absorbing the wrath of God, having God's wrath poured out as a cup upon him, and he endures that cross for us in grace. For those of you who have not trusted Christ, those of you who are unbelievers here, Turn to Christ. John wrote this for a specific purpose, that you might believe, and that believing you might have life in his name. So I urge you, if you are here today and you have not made peace with God through the righteousness of Christ, do so today. Call on the name of the Lord. Turn from your own self-righteousness, your own selfishness. Repent and trust Christ. Knowing this, Jesus died. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. His body was broken. His blood was shed. So this morning, we will observe communion together. And I hope that as we observe it, we remember what we saw in John 1, 14 through 18. Jesus took 
on himself flesh. That bread that we will break this morning, that bread that we will place in our mouth, it is a representation, it is a remembrance of the fact that God who is unlimited, God who is spirit, who did not have a body to hold him back, took upon himself flesh, became a man, dwelt with us. And today we hold these elements that symbolize the physical body of Christ and the physical blood of Christ. We partake of them together. We're united in our need for a Savior with a body, a Savior who is both God and man. 